This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. I would like to start off by noting a thanks to the people that put on that commemorative event in Roseville last week for the late, great Michael O'Connell. A lot of folks were involved in this, I think particularly his sister Shelley, but it was quite remarkable to see the outpouring of affection there was for this man. Here's Chilney was not able to attend uh, all of the eventary, in fact, even most of it. I was only able to make a relatively short appearance, so I can't be certain how much time was spent toward talking about another person who has left us, who has been affiliated with this program, Vladimir Zaravika. My understanding is that it was thanks to Vlado that Michael O'Connell got interested in doing comedy up on the stage. Vlado was our aviation correspondent. I say was because he left us two years ago. We did do a commemorative program in honor of him on Radio Parallax, which you can find on our website at radioparallax.com. Sadly, it was Michael O'Connell himself who called me two years ago to inform me of Vlado's passing. It is my hope that uh, those two guys are somewhere exchanging jokes now. We also know that Mr. Merlin and I continue to be operating under duress. A great deal of stressors make it difficult for us to throw this program together in the usual fashion, but we're going to throw it together as best we can. Although I think what that means is today we're not going to do the good and the bad and the ugly or our usual quotes and quips, etc., but just kind of do a free-form program, which is hardly the first time we've done this. And just to be especially unconventional, I want to talk a little bit today about the star Proxima Centauri, which is as you know from last week's program, has now been discovered to have a planet. But that's probably another thing to start the top of the show with, so I'll move that back a little bit and we will return to it, I promise. All right, in our mixed bag for today's program, I'm just going to start grabbing some articles as we like to do. One in my hand right now is dated 4-14-11. I filed this away because it was about a subject of interest to me, erectile dysfunction drugs. As a listener may or may not know, I do run a clinic that treats erectile dysfunction. We do have about an 85% success rate, by the way. But this piece talked about the novel approaches that the drug manufacturers were using to keep Viagra and Cialis and Levitra, etc. from becoming too cheap. Writing in the New York Times, Duff Wilson wrote back in April of 2011 that in the United States, Pfizer is battling to keep low-priced generic competition off the shelves a year from now when the drug's patent expires. The generic pills would cost only a fraction of the $10 or more that each pill now costs. Well, I want to say they fought a very successful battle in this area because currently if you go out and try and buy Viagra, you're going to find the price is going to be, I don't know, tens of dollars. Like 30 bucks is not unusual. Yes, you can get it cheaper if you shop around, get it from Canada, etc., etc., but it is just ridiculous that Pfizer has managed to uh, extend its patent. Uh, apparently, the drug, sildenafil, aka Viagra, uh, has a patent for its chemical that expired back in 2012, which apparently is why now, if you're a Kaiser patient, they will give you another form of Viagra, not the dosing that's usual for ED, but the one that's more usual for treating pulmonary disease. The, the patent for treating ED lasts until 2019. So as far as I can tell, Kaiser is buying the drug then going off patent with it, using it uh, to treat ED for their patients while 
not having to pay the full price that you or I might, or that you or I, that you or I might have to pay. Now, don't ask me for a detailed explanation of drug pricing because, man, oh man, I don't think any human being can explain that, except to note there's a lot of corruption involved. We'll talk more about that in a second. But uh, yeah, I'm sure that the price they're paying for the the sildenafil as a pulmonary drug is still not the price you'd be paying as a generic, Some, somewhere in between. Anyway, the upshot of all this is we're all paying too much for this drug. We're all paying too much for a lot of drugs. There's a big scandal going on currently about the fact that EpiPens, which used to sell for something like $100, are now up to $600. Since this is an important thing you may need if you have an tendency toward anaphylaxis, and this might save your life, well, you're going to just pay the price and keep some EpiPens around. But it's just BS. It has to do with the drug companies wanting to continue to be more profitable, so that continuing to be more profitable, so that Wall Street likes them, so that their stock price stays up, and if you ask me, probably so that the people running the company can make more money by stock price manipulation than they can from, you know, their salaries. ABC News is, an, among others, is noting that uh, this EpiPen price hike is prompting some families to buy the drug in Canada, which, of course, is identical to the product that you buy here in America, only at a fraction of the cost. So, yeah, you want to buy an EpiPen in Washington State, you're going to spend $600. You walk across the border into Vancouver, it's going to cost you $100 to $145. It's price gouging, pure and simple. Once again, demonstrates how our regulatory agencies and government does tend to side with the power elite over you and I. Hate to sound like Leon Trotsky here, but that's just that's just a fact. And speaking of government siding with the powerful, the government of Ireland is now siding with Apple in the wake of the European Union slapping Apple with a big fine over the fact that, uh, well, they're saying they got a sweetheart deal with the Irish government and, you know, for the sole purpose of avoiding taxation. Right, to quote from the Wall Street Journal, which we don't do all that often, piece by Richard Rubin, under the headline, EU Decision Upsets Treasury, comma, Congress, said Rubin, American politicians have spent years salivating over U.S. companies' stockpile of untaxed foreign profits, now more than $2 trillion and growing. Europe got to that money pot first. The European Commission's ruling last Tuesday that Apple Inc. must pay $14.5 billion in back taxes to Ireland marked a sharp break with the U.S. Treasury Department and further complicates efforts to forge a bipartisan deal on U.S. tax policy that had seemed plausible but remains out of reach. The article goes on. To the Treasury and Congress, EU regulators represent a threat, partly because companies could get U.S. tax credit if they pay more abroad, reducing future U.S. tax collections. Yes, that's right. The fact that Apple may be forced to pay more money to Ireland may earn them a tax credit and get them to pay less here in the United States. The sad reality is this is just how things work uh, with corporations. Corporations were designed to, well, among other things, limit someone's liability. There's a disconnect between the people that run these organizations, these corporations, and the corporation itself. They're not held accountable for things, and that's part of the problem. Now, how we're going to solve this? Well, I'm not sure, but I do recall while traveling many years back. In fact, I can tell you exactly. It was 1988. I was in India, and I had a copy of a book called The Sovereign State of ITT, and it explained at great length how the ITT Corporation 
by being a multinational, found ways to just avoid the tax man in every country it was operating in. They'd say, no, we didn't make any profits here. We made them over there. Unless the governments of the world get together to try and stop this, and there's no evidence they're going to do that, well, it's, it's just going to continue. And at this point, haven't we had just about enough of high-tech companies misbehaving? I mean, when the Internet was a new and fragile thing, the commerce taking place on it was given a tax break. They said that, well, if you want to order something on the web because this is really struggling, we should, you know, we should allow people to just, you know, buy things and not have to pay local taxes. And as a consequence, we've seen brick and mortar stores go belly up everywhere because, well, they had unfair competition on the internet. Now that these web companies are some of the colossuses of the corporate world, you'd think that this tax break thing just might need a rethinking, wouldn't you say? Again, going back to the, the Wall Street Journal, piece by Natalia Drozdiak and Sam Schreiner, under the headline, Apple Faces 14.5 Billion Irish Tax Bill, they note that the size of the tax demand risks further unsettling multinational companies, which face a broader international effort to curb aggressive tax avoidance. <laughs> Sorry, I just have to laugh. I, I hope that they can make some international efforts there. But it notes that the commission's decision shows companies could be on the hook for past behavior and potentially be handed big bills for allegedly unpaid back taxes. Allegedly? Anyway, enough about that. We do have to search for good news. Sometimes it's a hard search, but there is one item I think probably worthy of mention here, a piece in the Sacramento Bee by Ryan Sabalo, titled Project Aims to Help Delta Smelt by Boosting Plankton. Peace notes that before there were levees and dams, the rivers and streams that flowed through the Central Valley into San Francisco Bay swelled and shrank with the seasons. Huge, shallow floodplains warmed by the sun mingled with icy mountain snowmelt to create a habitat rich with microscopic plankton, the base of the aquatic food chain. Now, nearly all the waterways that feed the delta are channelized for shipping, farming, and flood control. They note none more so than the Sacramento River. Todd Summers, scientists with the Department of Water Resources, were quoted as saying, it's a deep, cold, dark channel. It doesn't produce much plankton. And Summers leading an effort to improve conditions for plankton in the hope it will save from extinction the species that's most emblematic of the delta's ecological woes, the delta smelt. The tiny fish eat plankton, and smelt numbers are at an all-time low. Noted Summers, they're obviously in real trouble right now. A key reason is they're starving to death. Later on in the article... Sommer said that he and his colleagues got the idea to try and create a summertime plankton bloom after observing what happened in 2011 and 2012, when farmers had enough water to divert it into the North Delta in autumn. We saw the first plankton bloom for fall in 20 years, he said. Anyway, we hope this effort can be successful before it's too late. If the Delta smelt population crashes, so will the fish up the food chain that depend upon it for food. Apparently, Jerry Brown has a budget to... Uh, uh, that set aside $4.2 million for Delta smelt restoration efforts, and we just, again, we hope it's not too late. As noted on, in this program, and also noted in the article, in early June, the State Department of Fish and Wildlife released the results of a spring survey that count adult fish and showed a drop from even the record low numbers of Delta smelt tallied in last year's account. And in contrast to the story about the Delta smelt populations going down, we do have this story about temperatures going up. In fact, my understanding is that for the 15th month in a row, world temperatures have set new world records. Scientists are saying now that uh, this means we're probably in the hottest period on Earth since the last interglacial period 125,000 years ago. 
New Scientist magazine notes that uh, the record for the hottest month is not going to last long. <laughs> In fact, that, you know, that was for July. I mean, we'll see whether August breaks the record again. I'm betting it will. They also note that a warmer planet means more extreme weather events, and that's exactly what we're seeing. They note, for instance, the temperature in Mitriba, Kuwait, reached 54 degrees Celsius on the 21st of July, which is the hottest temperature reliably recorded outside of Death Valley, California. They also note that extreme rainfall events, like the one that caused extensive flooding in Louisiana in the past week, will also become more common as the warmer atmosphere is able to hold more moisture. Make sure you have a new raincoat. All right, we're looking forward in November to having an, an item on the, the ballot which will make marijuana, cannabis, legal in California. My understanding is the trends indicate that it is likely to pass. One can hope so. But, of course, the critics of pot are not going to go quietly. Article in the B this week by Christopher Catalago notes that pot critics focus on driving while stoned. The piece notes that in speaking to the Sacramento Bee editorial board, the president of the California Association of Highway Patrolmen criticized Prop 64 for lacking an established standard, such as what exists for alcohol. Well, hello, there is no way to do that with cannabis. They note that the president talked to his counterparts in Colorado and Washington. He said experienced a huge spike in marijuana-related deaths on roadways since legalization. And I'm quoting from the piece. Washington drivers involved in deadly crashes who tested positive for marijuana jumped 48% over one year, while Colorado had a 36% rise. Well, the problem with this is that if you test positive for marijuana in your system in a fatal crash, you might have smoked marijuana three weeks previously and has nothing to do with your auto accident. In fact, even though they've set standards for five nanograms per milliliter, they're saying that's very subjective. They note, in fact, that DAs in the state of California now don't even want to file DUI marijuana cases because of the fact there's no set limit. Is this a reason not to legalize pot? Uh, we don't think so. It does show how desperate they are in, in some of these arguments they're serving up. It should be noted, as the piece does, that since marijuana in this state became relatively more legal back in 1996, that the in-state Mileage death rate, measured by every 100 million miles traveled, well, it started at 1.43 in 1996 when medical marijuana was legalized. It's now down to 0.92, even though there's demonstrably more people on the highway who are probably a little bit buzzed, or at least had some marijuana in the system. Now, we're not suggesting anybody should be driving a motor vehicle impaired. God knows you should not be, but that includes things like Benadryl. It also includes things like being sleep-deprived. Anyway... We'll see what happens in November. All right, let's go back and talk about uh, Proxima Centauri and its planet. Oh, and by the way, there's a, there's, there's a headline, this is not a drill. The SETI Institute and others are taking a look at some signals they found from a star about 94 light years away, and they're seeing something on it that's sort of a correlation to the famous case back in 1997 when a signal 30 times that greater than background came blowing in, and somebody wrote on the page, wow. Well, no one's been able to duplicate the wow signal. And this current one is being called something analogous. If they, see, if they can pick up some more signals, then they're, they're onto something. Otherwise, it may just stand as an anomaly. Anyway, to quote from Space.com, they note that this current signal is consistent with something an alien civilization might send out. But that's just one scenario and not the most likely one, researchers cautioned. The signal may also result from a, nat- a natural celestial event or terrestrial interference of some sort. 
Seth Shostak, senior editor at the SETI Institute in Mountain View, who was, who was not a part of the detection team, said, well, if they can't find it again, and if we at SETI can't find it, all we can say is, gosh, I wonder what it was. Now, it is worth noting that uh, astronomers know that the star in question, which is called HD 164595, does house a roughly Neptune mass world, but it's orbiting closer, so it's not like, uh, you know, Neptune out in the deep freeze of, of our solar system. Well, it's considered, from where it's orbiting, probably way too hot to host life as it exists on Earth. But hell, nobody's sure what's going on here. All right, let's return back to Proxima Centauri. This, this correspondent was quite tickled to read about it on Wikipedia and see some of the, what I find to be really curious uh, details about this star system. Uh, most of the stars out there in the heavens are multiple stars. Being a solo object like our sun is believed to not be the norm. So it's not unusual that the closest star to us, Proxima Centauri, is part of a three-star system. It is believed that this red dwarf is part of the Alpha Centauri system because the three stars are observed to be moving through space in the same direction at the same time, at the same speed. Proxima Centauri is thought, thought to be part of the Alpha Centauri system, a three-star system, because all three are moving through space in the same direction at the same speed. Now, we know Alpha Centauri A and B are clearly orbiting one another, but I find it fascinating that we're just not quite positive that Proxima Centauri is orbiting the other two. If you go on the internet, you'll find a wonderful little diagram showing the fact that, um, that Proxima Centauri is kind of at right angles to Alpha Centauri and us, and yet is about uh, a tenth of a light year closer. If you went down to Australia and looked up in the sky and wondered, how close is Proxima to Alpha? Um, it turns out that it's about four diameters of the full moon away, which, which is a fair piece if you think about it. And of course, if you think about it, it'll probably give you a headache. I just find that stuff really curious. And uh, I would like to go down to Australia and, and maybe visit our friend down there, Pamela Taylor, who is our Australian correspondent, also the president of the Cairns Astronomy Club, and see if we can't get a telescope and take a look at this nearest red dwarf to our sun. You definitely can't see the planet, however. The, the planet was detected by the wobbles it induced on its parent star. There's lots of ways you can find an exoplanet. One way is to notice it's eclipsing in front of the star. That's how the Kepler mission found, you know, at this point, a couple thousand planets and counting. But another way to do it is to watch how the spectrum shifts. And the, there's a Doppler effect. If something's moving closer to you or further from you, the lines that you see in the spectrum, they move. You can use that method to pick up a planet. And that's how they found this one around Proxima Centauri. Everybody's keen to know more about this planet, but we're going to probably have to wait until the James Webb Space Telescope gets launched in 2018. First thing they want to do is take a look at this star, which is about size of the Earth, and also orbiting in the Goldilocks zone, so-called, around its parent star, which is where temperatures are right for water to be in a liquid state. You get closer than the Goldilocks zone, like the planet Venus, and it's too hot for water. Basically, you would steam off the oceans. And by the way, recent studies indicate they think Venus probably did have oceans much like the Earth up till about a billion years ago. That's a story for another day. Around our own sun, this Goldilocks zone is thought to start outside of Mercury, a little bit inside of where we are at the Earth, and go out to about where Mars is. If you go out to Mars, you'll find that it's pretty tough to find liquid water, but that's 
partly due to the fact that there's not enough atmosphere. If Mars had an atmosphere more analogous to Earth, you might be able to find flowing water on its surface. And again, they think that Mars did definitely have flowing water a few billion years ago. Now, they may be able to tell what the, what's going on on the surface of Proxima Centauri B when they point the James Webb telescope at it. They'll measure the temperature on the hot side, they'll measure the temperature on the dark side, and they'll see what can be determined from that. If there is a thick atmosphere, or is there if there's an ocean on its surface, it may well be that the heat of the one side is being transferred to the other side. The planet is almost certainly tidally locked, meaning that the same side faces the sun, just, just as our moon. If you look at the moon, you'll notice it's the same face every time you see it. Well, that's because it's tidally locked. Its orbit, in other words, how long it takes to go around the Earth, exactly corresponds with how long it takes to spin a 360. Thus, it always faces the same way. This planet is in a similar situation, and they think that probably all of the planets orbiting red dwarfs that might suit a, might be a habitat for life are all going to have this same problem of being tidally locked. We mentioned on last week's program that yet another problem is the fact that these red dwarfs sometimes go nuts and erupt with a huge increase in energy off the surface, which kind of irradiates the planet with x-rays and other nasty things, which doesn't exactly make them a great place to have, a, you know, a nursery. Anyway, we'll have more to say about this in future installments of the program. It's pretty cool stuff. We also want to note that uh, fresh from the headlines is the fact that they've now found some stromatolites, which are the earliest evidence we have of complex life, on Greenland, now thought to be 3.7 billion years old. We've now pushed back the origins of life to just about the time we think they're what's called the late heavy bombardment, when planet Earth got blasted by a bunch of comets and asteroids from deeper in the solar system. We don't see this on Earth, but we see it on the Moon and other bodies that Sometime, we guess about then, all hell broke loose. Now, it's thought that when things were crashing into the Earth, you know, right and left, that was probably a bad time for life to start. But we've now, we're knocking on the door of that time frame. So, um, boy, maybe life uh, got started a lot earlier than we think. Some other research reported on in New Scientist notes that um, they're taking a look at, at how life might have formed uh, molecules that can make more of themselves. And they're concluding that perhaps that um, last universal common ancestor or Luca might have been a lot later than we think. Uh, it is certainly thought that if you trace back all life on Earth, you'll eventually converge on this one organism, but it was probably late to the party. By the time it showed up here on planet Earth, um, uh, life had probably been going at it for a while. A lot of this stuff's pretty speculative at this point, but damn, in the years to come, we may resolve some of these mysteries. And speaking of the origins of life and how it might get started, uh, a lot of people are taking a look now out at Saturn. Saturn's got a couple of great candidates for places where you might find life. The moon Enceladus, quite small, probably the brightest object in the solar system because its surface is fresh. It's just as fresh as new fallen snow because, well, it seems to be resurfaced all the time. There's some tidal heating going on from um, its orbit around Saturn, and they're pretty convinced now that if you dig down through the icy surface, you will find an ocean. Well, they're pretty darn certain of that because they also found Enceladus had some cracks in near its southern hemisphere that were spewing, in essence, geysers up into, uh, up into space. And at one point, the Cassini spacecraft was able to crash through that mist, that spray mist as it was, and, and uh, take a sniff. Uh, one of the things they found were, as I understand it, bits of silicate 
rock, in other words, uh, which would be what you would expect if there were some geothermal vents underneath that um, icy surface that were heating up the water and, in essence, making geysers. It's amazing stuff. There certainly are oceans on other moons. We're pretty convinced that Jupiter's uh, three moons, Callisto, Ganymede, and Europa particularly, all have uh, oceans somewhere underneath their icy surface. But um, exploring them is going to be a bit of a problem. So one place they're focusing on that we can get to more easily, in fact, we've already gotten to, is the surface of the moon Titan. As uh, you may have noted, and we hope you did by listening to Radio Parallax, about a decade ago, the Huygens probe detached itself from the Cassini spacecraft and took a plunge through the atmosphere of Titan, took photographs on the way down, and landed. It landed on what appeared to be a stream bed, except that the rocks in the stream bed were not made of silicates or stone. They were made of ice. And the liquid that was flowing through this channel was obviously not water because that was frozen solid, but rather ethane or methane in a liquid form, which subsequent investigations have now proven form large lakes on the surface of Titan. Uh, this seems like it might be a good place to look for life, being that there's liquid and there's solid and, you know, etc. But uh, we're talking cold. Most of the chemical reactions we associate with life need need a little more temperature to go forward. So if, if someday they do find life on Titan, it's bound to be different than life here on Earth. Because it's bound to be different. A lot of people assume that, it, well, it, it just can't be there. But the truth is, nobody knows. And I'm trying to rack my brain as to whether we talked about a couple of the mysteries of Titan. I know I read about them. I'm not sure whether I shared what I, what I learned. But there are some curious anomalies. In fact, there's definitely lakes. And they're able to peer through the surface of the planet because although Titan has an atmosphere twice the, de the density of our atmosphere on Earth, it's smoggy. It's literally smoggy. There's compounds in the, in the atmosphere that uh, are analogous to photochemical smog, familiar to people that live in Los Angeles, which means, unfortunately, you can't peer through it. But you can use radar, and you can use uh, really high-tech radar to get a very accurate look at the surface. And there's no doubt there are lakes. The lakes have islands on them. And at one point when they made a one pass and went back later, they discovered that one of the islands had disappeared. How an island is appearing and disappearing on a lake on, on the moon Titan is uh, something that is, that is yet to be resolved. One thing I thought curious too is that some people have looked at the geometry of these lakes. And as the tides affect the lakes on, on Titan, which are, as I say, either liquid methane or ethane, well, there'll be tides analogous to the ocean here on Earth. By looking at the geometry of how these little bays and inlets uh, are set up, they've concluded that there may actually be giant whirlpools in some locations, such as found here between Sicily and the boot of Italy. But uh, I think it's going to be uh, a bit of a time before anybody is able to verify that possibility. My understanding is the good people at NASA and the European Space Agency are planning to basically launch boats, <laughs> a spacecraft that can float, to put down on one of these lakes, but we're too busy spending our money on, on munitions and bombs to be able to devote a lot of time and energy to that sort of enterprise, which is, which is a darn shame. You know, if we ever got around to taxing Apple properly, we might have enough funds to, uh, to, to, to send this thing up there a little bit sooner. All right, let's return from outer space back here to planet Earth and unfortunately do just a little bit of politics, uh, maybe some deep politics here. Yuval Rabin, who is the son of former Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, who was assassinated 20 years ago, uh, 
had some pithy things to say about Donald Trump making references to shooting Hillary Clinton or having the Second Amendment people do so. To quote from it, Rabin said, Donald Trump's utterings about Second Amendment people taking matters into their own hands to block as President Hillary Clinton's Supreme Court pick were a new level of ugliness in an ugly campaign. In Israel, incitements such as this led to the murder of my father 20 years ago. Because he dared pursue peaceful relations with our neighbors, my father was contemptuously called a traitor, and posters of him dressed as a Nazi war criminal were waved at right-wing rallies. Rabin goes on to note that the social pact that democracies honored depends on words, not weapons, being used to debate issues. It relies on the populace accepting the outcome of elections, as well as the ability and willingness of government officials to compromise. That one phrase really caught me. It does depend on the populace in a democracy, accepting the outcome of elections, apparently even if elections are stolen, as they were here in the United States in both the year 2000 and the year 2004. Once the Republican-appointed Supreme Court stopped the vote recount in Florida, which would have shown that Al Gore, in fact, had carried Florida and the nation, when asked what he could do about it now, Gore pointed out, well, there isn't much this side of, you know, violent revolution which is a pretty sad commentary and shows why we need an active press. I wish we had one. Now, one final story we're going to, uh, to take a look at in terms of deep politics is the news that Oliver Stone, who has a book coming out uh, later this month, and boy, wouldn't it be great to interview him? Don't rule it out, dear listener. We, we might be able to do that. Is now claiming that he was told by someone on the inside that the murder of JFK was in part an inside job. This comes from a deathbed confession to Oliver Stone. But all I know about this right now is that Stone was apparently contacted by a man claiming to have been a former member of the presidential security team. Whether that means Secret Service, I'm not sure. Supposedly the man dying of cancer wanted to share a secret he then only told his son, which was that somebody from his own team had fired on the president. When we know more, we'll tell you more. Oliver Stone also has a movie coming out in the near future about Edward Snowden, and yes, we're going to be keen to see that. Oliver Stone's JFK was one of the most remarkable pieces of filmmaking uh, this correspondent has ever seen. And no, it wasn't right about all the details, but it didn't really spell anything out. It just left you possibilities that were certainly more plausible in most cases than that of the Warren Commission report. At any rate, that's about all i got to say about that for now. Feel free to drop us a line anytime at info at radioparallax.com. We thank those of you who have been contributing to keep us on the air. But I would say at this point, it's not looking good. We have vowed that if Radio Parallax comes to a close in the near future, we will be back, and back before too long, with something to replace it. And that's about it for today. We'll see you next week. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax.